Hi there, and thanks for joining us. On this week's podcast, we speak to the man who heads up Ireland's largest independent drinks distribution company. I'm Jonathan Healy, and this is Red Business. Red Business, Cork's exclusive business podcast. Michael Barry of Barry and Fitzwilliam, you're very welcome to the podcast. How are you, sir? Very good. How long have you been in this trade? Uh, some would say too long, but I, <laughs> I started in 1982, October 18th, 1982. So we celebrated our 37th birthday last October. So the big plan, obviously, is to get to the 40-year mark in 2022 and then to go for 2032 and celebrate 50 years in business. So Because I was, asked, I, I was asked a few years ago, what is the big plan when I was 25 years in business? And I didn't have a big plan. <laughs> now I have. It's just keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep growing. Yeah. Uh, what brought you to that sector? Because your, your background was in accounting. Yeah. yeah accounting. I, I worked in Murphy's Brewery from 74 to 1982, which is now Heineken, Ireland. I went in as a trainee accountant. And uh, there was a gentleman there called Bob Kennefick who became famous in the trade as sales director of Murphy's and Heineken afterwards. He's passed since. And Bob was, had a huge influence on my career. And uh, he spotted me in the accounts department and said, you're wasted here and you're probably bored here. Come and work for me because the wine spirit division was taking off. And um, I, I needed an, uh, an administration manager. So it wasn't your typical accounting that I was doing every day, it was more general management, but accounting was a great discipline to have as part of the job. Well, you always need somebody yeah, yeah. to make sure that you're doing it right. That's a very important. <laughs> yeah. um, when you think about the sector as it was back in 82, yeah. very much the on-trade, it was mm-hmm. all pubs. Um, the off-trade was very small. Um, we did not have a taste for wine, which is kind of hard to credit now. And your your spirits would be limited to Jim's and Paddy and Cork Dry Gin. Yeah. I mean, we, we very much started as a wholesaler. It, we, if you like, Barry's Wines and Spirits was the original name of the company. And we amalgamated with, with a Dublin company, Fitzwilliam Wines and Spirits, in 1989. But let's get back to 82. Um, I set up the company because of the Murphy's Brewery went into receivership. And I had a good idea that... The receiver wasn't interested in the wine and spirit division. He was more interested in selling the brewery to Heineken. So I said, I'm out of here and got a backer and a friendly banker. Yes, the back of the days when they were slightly friendly. But you are correct. Um, At that time, I would say 90% of our sales, even though we call ourselves a wine and spirit company, 90% of our sales were spirits. 10% would would have been uh, wine. wine. At, at what point then did you see that turning around? Because I remember distinctly, our, our parents had a shop very briefly uh, in, in Donnybrook and the, it had a wine licence, mm-hmm. but the only thing you sold was Blue Nun. I, I thought that the only wine Don't, available blue was Blue Nun. You're talking to the current distributor. That's <laughs> very big. But, yeah. but the point was at the time, the selection was Blue Nun or not. Dinehart Green Label, Matthews Rosé. Yeah, with the Matthews Rosé, yeah. I got that one. And that's still selling. Um it took years, I would say. It took 10 years for us. Like, so we're into the 90s before we started selling serious amounts of wine. And um, today, our split of business is probably 30% um, spirits, 
40% wine and the rest would be beers and RTDs and things like that. And and that's probably another conversation to have because you started out wines and spirits yeah. moving away from beer altogether mm-hmm. but then the market demanded a new type of beer not the kind of stuff that pours from the tap in the pub but the fancy beers and the yeah, fancy well, ciders. We, we were one of the first because we had a great route to market we were continually being asked by our customers to bring in uh, foreign imported bottled beers and we like even today I, I think we do listen to our customers but back then we listened and one of the brands we brought in was a, a product called Corona 1990 and that became a, a bit of a roller coaster it was a great success at the beginning it died because in in kind of the mid 90s early 2000s um, because we woke up sleeping giants like Heineken and Miller and people like that that the long neck was the I market think. to be in. Yeah. And Corona was the first long neck beer to be Should sold ha- in Ireland. A lime hadn't been sold in this country for, for right years. Away, the, first few years of, <laughs> the first few years of trying to get lime was quite difficult. People <laughs> were putting lemon in the bottle. Oh dear, sacrilege. And uh, people would ask me, oh, what's the difference between the lime and the lemon? I said, bite them. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll find out the difference between the lime and the lemon. And I'd say one enhances and one doesn't. And, and, uh, and so it became fa- very fashionable. Was it quite a roller coaster then? Because it was, yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the taste and the consumer choice changed, and all of a sudden you had a ready market. Where, where we had, when you started, there had, wasn't the market. There wasn't the market, and we for about two to three years we had the market to ourselves. But when you wake up sleeping giants like Diageo and Heineken and Beamish and Crawford at the time, well, then they're going to throw everything at it, especially when they see the Nielsen figures, and there's only one long neck beer. And they feel it needs competition and competition came. Yeah, quite But then quickly. we, I feel like we relaunched around 2003 and uh, I think 2005 we pulled a stunt with um, some of the car curlers with their football boots and we branded the... Um, oh, I remember yeah, that. It was, it, was, it was very big. It was a stunt. It was a scandal. It was a scandal. Was, I, a scandal I called it guerrilla marketing and Sean Kelly who was the, the head of GA at the time uh, said it was ambush marketing. In that context, when you're looking back at, at that period uh, where it was this dramatic change, it must have been personally a very busy time for you because you were trying to stay ahead of those those sleeping giants, as you referred to them. You were growing oh, your business. 60, 70 hours a week, absolutely. You, and you were, that, was, was, that is looking over your shoulder the whole time. Always. <laughs> I still am. Uh, How did you cope with that? Because that personally would have taken quite a toll. Um, well, my wife works in the business and my children are coming into the business, but I suppose it was always business around the house at home. And I suppose we, we never got bored of it. It became business and the social aspect and family aspect of things. I feel like they merged into each other. So it's almost not a job. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, if, if I tell people what I'm doing, um, you yeah, that's my job. I import wine spirits from all over the world and I travel a lot to the vineyards and I, I actually say I have the perfect job. Campaign tester, beer tester, wine tester. So even though it long hours, it's not arduous. I, at least I've never found it arduous. And I'm still hungry for, for more and more success and to find the next big thing. And having that integrated family unit uh, part of the business and you said the kids are coming into which we come in a minute working very closely with your wife mm-hmm. I mean you have to have a good solid relationship to begin uh, with don't you because abs- it, it can go south very quickly otherwise <laughs> absolutely so um, 
there are times that Kathleen Barry will bring homework and I'll just put up the hand and say I'm not interested and then vice versa. But that, you, you, know, you, you know each other's groove. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned going away because you have to go to all of these places, yeah, yeah. don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, for a young man, that's probably fantastic that you're over away and guess what we're drinking. Yeah. Um, have you changed your attitude as you've gotten older or do you still see the merit in doing that and, and, and the going The networking side of that is very important. Yeah. Uh, I don't travel as much as I used to do in Europe, we'll say. Um, my daughter Kate does a fair, who's the brand manager for the company, does a fair share of that. But I, because the likes of McGuigan Wines from Australia and Villa Maria from New Zealand have become huge brands for us, well, you're almost expected to travel to both countries once a year. And if you don't, you're kind of thinking, what's wrong? Wait, why aren't you, why, why why aren't you, you here? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah that's, that's about the only change. And some would say, isn't that fantastic? But tw- a 24 hours travelling to New Zealand will take it out of you. Tell yeah, you that much. absolutely. <laughs> you certainly build up the air miles. Um, ha- has it changed there? Because uh, obviously the, the Irish situation is, is, I suppose it's not unique globally. Wine is a lot more popular than it was. Uh, you know, when you go there now, do, are they delighted to see the Irish distributor coming through the door or, or has everybody grown? Well, f- from our perspective, Villa Maria are ecstatic <laughs> with what's happening in Ireland for them, particularly as a brand. So... We're the exclusive importers of Villa Maria, and it's number one selling New Zealand wine brand in the market. It outsells all of the other brands at least two, if not three to one. Wow, okay. I think we I can see they'd be delighted to see it of New Zealand, we have the highest per capita consumption of Villa Maria wines in Ireland. So, yes. So, they're, they're very happy to see you coming. Yeah. The, the and quite, likewise, the same same is true with McGuigan. You would have grown up close enough to Middleton, didn't you? I'm from Middleton. You're originally. from Middleton. Yeah. So the distillery, I mean, I, again, the, we we think of the distillery now and the size of it. It, was yeah. never, it wasn't always that big. Yeah. But were you aware of it growing up? Uh, I was very much aware of it. <laughs> it was derelict and it was a playground for a few of us after really? school. Yeah. And I remember going, besides being an importer, we're also wholesalers and we're, you know, one of our sisters' bigger wholesale customers these days. So I do get invited back um, now and then by Irish distillers to Middleton for various functions. And it is just unbelievable. It's like a town within a town. And I take my hat off to them for the success, of, uh, particularly of Jemison. You are distributing internally, but it shows that all of that knowledge, that accrued knowledge, I mean, you mentioned all the brands that you've had so far, Murphy's, Beamish and Crawford, Guinness, um, Irish distillers. We have it down to a very fine art in this country, don't we? We do like alcohol, that's a fact. Uh, and we're very good at exporting those brands. And um, the one thing I find a bit hypocritical, if you like, is the anti-alcohol lobby, because I think the number one destination for tourists into Ireland is the Guinness Storehouse. And if we didn't have that, and if we didn't have the export market for the likes of Guinness, Jemison, Bailey's, I think we'd be a different country. There, there is the argument that'll be put forward, and uh, and I will say it out loud, Michael, that you know maybe we're a bit too fond of the drink in this country, and the idea of drinking at home, um, that that arguably has increased levels of consumption. I mean, what when people I make that argument to you, what Jonathan, do you say? I don't have the stats in front of me, but the per capita consumption of alcohol in Ireland has reduced dramatically. 
That's what I'm saying. And and the young and there was a survey out just this week saying that younger people are drinking less. Mo- yes, they're younger becoming more age. responsible. Yeah. Absolutely. And is that do you think that the on trade that we were talking about in the eighties, people drank an awful lot more when they were in the pub, and you're saying that not everybody is drinking as much when they're drinking at home now if they're not in the pub? Um, I don't believe they are, honestly. I think they're more responsible consumers and I think the drink driving campaign has probably changed that over the years. Um, the one thing I will say that I don't agree with when it comes to selling alcohol is the undercost selling of alcohol by the big multiples. I think that is totally irresponsible and I've actually written to the likes of Irish distillers only this week complaining about they condoning, as I see it, the, the, the selling of alcohol at ridiculously low pricing. And I, the sooner that minimum unit pricing comes in, as far as we're concerned, the better. Why so? I mean, if you charge more in the supermarket, they're going to sell less, arguably, so that'll affect you. No, the, the point I'll make is that when beer is being sold cheaper than bottles of water, that's a bad state of affairs. And that's what happened this Christmas and last Christmas. That should be stopped. Um, I, I do find that kind of frustrating when I go in uh, because like this I'm, I, you pontificate on the radio it's kind of what you do mm-hmm. uh, and then when you go in you do feel hypocritical because you're picking up a case of, I mean I, I always made the point that a euro a can exactly what you said cheaper yeah. than water this Christmas it was 20 euros for 24 I, cans I've never seen anything like it yeah, uh, and again if you did want to delve into the spirits world there was bottles of, of whiskey for 20 quid and below bottles of vodka for less and, and, and they seem to be given gin away virtually absolutely only in the supermarkets only in the supermarkets but they're using alcohol as a last leader to drive football for their groceries mm. so if, if you like it's, it's false the, 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 the real price of alcohol for, for example uh, I think a bottle of Jameson should be at least around 24 euros. It's kind of the recommended retail price. And I thought definitely at 20 euros in the supermarket. And as you say, slabs of beer were 24 cans for 20. And when minimum unit pricing comes in, whenever that'll happen, which probably will be in 12 months' time, that'll double. You, so it will bring down the price. Of, it will mm. actually help the anti-alcohol lobby. See, th- this is where we, we, we stray into slightly uh, deeper water. You supply the supermarkets as well. So you have relationships with all the big multiples yeah. as a supplier. When you have the conversation with oh, them. I'm sure I'm going to slap in the wrist next week from, from a few people when they hear this. Well, I have to fight my corner. You know, yeah. That's why I'm fighting my but, corner. But you do, you do as distributor. I mean, you are the biggest distributor. You, you independent. independent. I to God I was the biggest yeah, distributor. Yeah, yeah, biggest independent. But you, you, you do talk to them all, don't you? you Absolutely, mean? yes. We have relationships with Diageo, Pernorica, Edward Dillon's people like that, yeah. And and on the other side then, you deal with the supermarket chains as well. Absolutely. We uh, deal with Tesco, we deal with Super Value, we deal with Dunn Stores, Spar, all of them. When you think about it, if you, there's always the opportunity. You're the guy probably getting squeezed from both sides. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I mean, I'm surprised you haven't burst over the years because <laughs> they're very competitive players, aren't they? I've become a very patient person, John, <laughs> over the years. And if, there are times I've learned to keep my powder dry. And when you're out there, because I mean, there's people who will be listening to this who will be maybe starting that journey or mm-hmm. who, who are some way in. And I always, sometimes when you speak to businesses, they we've done a fantastic deal with Supermarket X, mm-hmm. but they haven't done a deal with Supermarket Y or Z. Mm-hmm. And you're going, well, be careful now because you're only dealing with Supermarket X. What, what advice do you give people when they're dealing with those big players? Um, those, those big suppliers uh, and the mistakes that you most likely made. <laughs> I, I told you that. 
I would probably uh, advise, I'd probably give people too much advice and they mightn't be in business in a few years' time. <laughs> but anyway, look, it's about the balance, honestly. It's about the balance and common sense is what dictates a lot uh, as far as we're concerned. Yes, we can, like we, we launched the Graham Norton gin brand exclusively with Super Vendor last year for six months. We got a, you know, a certain amount of flack from the likes of uh, Tesco and Dunstores. And, uh, but our job was to get a, a retailer who would actually embrace the brand in a very big way and, and promote it. And, um, and they did. And we, and so it's, it's a case of balance. Do you balance that up against just putting it into the, the three big guys, of, include Sparrow, the four big guys, and hope that'll happen? Or do you embrace somebody who actually will guarantee you that they will get behind the brand. And that's exactly what they did. And it's been a fantastic success. You're already setting your plans. You've got your big 40th anniversary coming up in two years' time and then the 50th and the 60th. <laughs> uh, and and uh, you'll still be going probably for the 70th. But if, if, if you're to look into your crystal ball now, again, looking at the changes that have taken place over the last 40 years, where do you go next? I mean, what's the next thing that you're going to have to insulate yourself against and prepare yourself for? Uh, we believe it's cannabis. We believe that in about 10 years' time that cannabis will be legal in Ireland. At this point in time, CBD is legal, which is the, if, if you like, the the good part of cannabis. Without, uh, with, with the negative without drug. Without the THC, the without yeah. the high. Yeah. So, and even then, there's legislation around the CBD that it has to be extracted by the cold press method. Otherwise, retailers, it's, it, I can't say it's illegal, but then the Food Safety Authority would say that they only want to see CBD that's extracted from cold pressed, um, the cold pressed production method in the market in Ireland at the moment. So we've just signed a deal with um, province brands in Canada who brew beer and they, we hope to have a non-alcoholic beer that's produced, that, that has CBD, which is produced by the cold press method on the market in about three to four months. People so, will probably give out about that. You know that in advance. You're mixing two things there, drink and drugs. No, but it's non-alcoholic. Oh, it's non-alcoholic, so no drink. So, yeah, no, and so, no drugs. No drugs. Okay. Just CBD, which is available all over Ireland at the moment. Yeah. So actually, in, in my local um, supermarket yesterday, I uh, happened to d- see a product uh, in the off-license, and it was CBD oil. And I thought it was strange that... The, CBD oils were actually behind the counter alongside the alcohol uh, at the time. But if you like, that's our focus in the, in the sense that we do see it, like in a way, alcohol is a drug and um, cannabis is a drug. Um, so it will need regulation. And if you like, drinks importers, because we're so used to legislation from the government. You're well positioned to, to, well to take that on. Exactly. Um, when you look at it, you mentioned the kids coming into the business. Uh, is that the plan? Is is it to keep it within the family? I mean, I'm sure lots of people have come to you over the years and go, well, we like what you're doing. Here, Here's a big wad of cash. Would you not go off and retire and live in the Caribbean? Uh, Any time that that happens to us, we ask for too much and they walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Just on the record, if anyone is thinking of it right now, double your offer. But is it is, is it your intention to for this to continue Absolutely. as a family? I love, I love what I do. Get a great boast from it. Um, it's it's almost part of the entertainment business, if you like. Um, I think anybody that, that works for us 
love what they do as well. We rarely lose um, anybody from our sales team that they're out there and they're if like motivated to be entrepreneurs within the, the business, which is quite different to most of the multinationals. So even operate as a business in a in a different way to most other companies. And how long are you going to keep at it? Because I uh, told you. But have you? The mission is to get to twenty thirty two. Twenty thirty. But have you an intention of stepping back a small bit, or are you still going to keep yourself as involved as you are? I'm going to keep myself as involved as I am. Well, having fun doing it at least maybe I'll take more long haul flights uh, yeah yeah more <laughs> long haul flights but not necessarily the ones where you have to work on the far side um, Michael it's been a fascinating conversation about a really interesting sector and one that again is going to go under such change in the it years ahead it is a dramatic change yeah. um, thank you so much for joining us in Red Business thank you Jonathan my thanks to Michael Barry of Barry and Fitzwilliam. Don't forget you can download every episode of Red Business from redextra.ie. Nia Hennessy was the producer and we'll catch you on the next one. Red Business. All that's best about business in Cork.